Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. This is Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions. With Amanda Howard and Robert McKnight. Hello, and here we are again for a brand new episode of Monsters Who Murder. And guess who's with me? Yes, the serial killer whisperer herself, Amanda Howard. Hello, Amanda. Hey, Robert. I can't believe we're doing a part two. I didn't think that this would end up being a two-parter, but I'm kind of glad it did because I could add in a lot more detail. Yeah, well, we had enough clips and it just made sense, really, didn't it? (laughs) It does. It just proves sometimes I talk way too much considering what (laughs) I think I'm going to say to what I do actually say. Yeah, you never know. This magic ingredient... Well, yes, we are looking at Scott Peterson and there's a lot more to go through with his interviews and phone recordings, actually. But in the meantime, let's get to the news because Russian authorities say they have caught a serial killer they've been hunting for a long time. The alleged killer, known as Volga Maniac, is suspected of murdering at least 26 elderly women between 2011 and 2012. The serial killer was dubbed in the press as the Volga Maniac because many of his alleged crimes were committed in several regions lying along the Volga River. That's Europe's longest river. The killings took place in at least 12 different cities. Amanda, DNA evidence helped police with this one. Yes, and and this is where um, DNA sort of originated from, was being able to link cases together. So um, though he was killing in 2011 and 12, they were able to now, with further advancements in Russia, link all of these cases together, but they sort of knew he, he was, well, that a suspect was responsible for a lot of these. And, and in fact, today it's actually gone further and they've added another um, several killings. So he's actually up to now 32 possible victims. So um, it seems to be a case that is is developing e- even whilst we speak. And, yeah, so he was he was killing elderly women. Now, there's another um, serial killer in America that we've been following, the Chimmy Chimiri or whatever that guy's name was. He's actually had, had more victims added to and he was killing the exact same way. So we sort of have two killers doing the same thing that are still breaking cases but yeah so being able to link them and he left shoe prints at a lot of the um, victims homes because he would actually go in into their homes these were elderly women who lived alone and so he had sussed them out stalked his victims and then he had gone in and left footprints as well as dna so you know it's, it's good when they can link them together because it means that there's a lot of information that is there and available to them quite quickly rather than waiting decades like what we sometimes do for other serial killers. Yeah, and it's interesting, in 2009 he'd been convicted for theft uh, Mm -hmm. if they only knew who they had. Yeah, exactly. Well, had they kept him in for prison longer, maybe this wouldn't have been happening. But, you know, 
hindsight is a beautiful thing, as we always say. Mm. Well, look, Australian streaming service Stan is currently making a film based on the 1996 Port Arthur Massacre, and now people are calling for the film to be abandoned. The film is currently titled Nitram, which is Martin Bryan's first name backwards, although the maker says he will not name the gunman. Amanda, true crime films are nothing new, but in this country there is a lot of anger about this one being made. What do you think that is? Well, I mean, we actually talked about this on on the Patreon chat on Friday night. Mm. Um, a lot of Tasmanians don't want this to to happen. That they, they feel like that this is is their backyard. This is a place that they don't want to talk about. Talking about it brings up scars, brings up wounds, and and they are a an area that doesn't like to talk about things that that have happened before. But I mean, I'm of the opposite opinion. Is that if we talk about these things, if we look at them, if we go through and and look at these people's backgrounds, there can be things that help us identify. I mean, I know that profiling isn't as great as it used to be because we realise that everyone is so diverse and this won't stop these victims have that that have happened you know years ago now this is about looking and examining how um Port Arthur actually changed this country because it changed gun laws it changed a lot of practices it changed um active shooter practices and things like that in this country and I think I mean I know there's lots of conspiracies out there too about that it wasn't Martin Bryan himself and there was other people involved and there was special ops and all of this sort of stuff and I get that and people want that that to be involved too I don't know it's being done by the people who did Snowtown so I'm quite hopeful that they will do a very very good job um but I think we can't shy away from it. You know, we we all seem to be happy to watch things like Des that was on stand a couple of um, weeks ago now. You know, um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood by Quentin Tarantino was a huge um, film based on a sort of different version of, of the Manson case. And there's all of these cases that happen and they've gone from, you know, from In Cold Blood with um, Truman Capote that wrote it and, and become the film with Robert Blake in it. I mean, we've been doing these sorts of... of films for so many years I don't understand why this one is is getting the backlash I understand that there's a culture in Tasmania but for me I feel that this is one of our most deadliest moments in this country though we have had some that are are, are higher in, in significance I mean we actually had one in 1629 1629, where 110 people were killed. So we've had Mm. lots of massacres. We've actually had 89 massacres in this country and we've had 117 serial killers. So that's from my database, guys, and I've been in a couple of groups actually discussing things like this because it is something that has come a couple of times. But I think... We can't shy away from things that have happened and dramatisations of this are going to happen regardless. Why not let it happen the right way, the true way, examine what happened, don't shy away from it and think, oh, my God, this is what happened. It's interesting. We spoke about this on the Ben Robin Robbo show last week and people who listen to this podcast, like me, would presumably think there's nothing wrong with this film being made because, mm-hmm. as you said, there's films made all the time. You know, we we watch films like Dares and, and movies based on Ted Bundy and all this kind of stuff. But my co-host, Ben, really every fibre of his being wanted to stop this movie being made. And I was trying to get to the core of it. Is it because it's in our backyard? when we're so used to these cases being American and English and Canada and all these other places, but when it's in our own backyard, it changes things. And he couldn't articulate it. 
but he really just wanted to stop it being made. And I said to him, well, just don't watch it. Yeah. But that wasn't enough for him. He actually wanted to stop the film being made. But we've made so many over the years. I mean, yeah. we have one we're one done on Barlow and Chambers. There are two men that were hanged for for drug trafficking. You know, we had um, there's been a, a Chappelle Corby one. God forbid, I haven't bothered with that one. Um, you know, but we've had others. You know, there's several films on on Ivan Milat. Um, there's been dramatizations of a lot of of the cases. I would like to see some done on some of the um, Aboriginal massacres because again, that is something that we need to talk about too. Mile Creek is is one that comes instantly to mind but we we can't like it's it's not I don't find it gratuitous I believe that this is something that it allows us to examine something from sort of taking that one step back and having a look without the emotion and seeing what happened seeing how it developed I remember Port Arthur like it was yesterday I mean I was mm, actually doing my bachelor's of, of, of criminology at the time and um, we had a big study group and we were watching it unfold live on TV having no idea was actually what was happening but you know, I want to go back. Like we've done the Granville disaster. Mm. We've done. Um, we've done the the Threadbow disaster. Something we've about this Snowtown. one, though, it really, yeah. it's irking people. It's really fascinating from a psychological yeah. point of view why it really is upsetting people. But maybe that's a podcast for another time, Amanda. <laughs> oh, we could definitely do that. That's for sure. <laughs> All right, moving on. And America's most prolific serial killer, who has credibly confessed to more than 90 murders, has admitted to killing a woman whose death sent an innocent man to prison. The 80-year-old recently says he killed Dorothy Gibson, a 17-year-old runaway who was found strangled outside a Miami hotel in 1977. This is all according to the New York Post. Jerry Frank Townsend, a mentally retarded man who falsely confessed to killing Gibson, had previously spent 22 years behind bars before he was released in 2001. Amanda, it seems like every week we're discovering a new victim from this bloke. Yeah, I know. And when this first started, I thought, here we go, we're going to have a Henry Lee Lucas again who confessed to 315 murders or some exorbitant amount of cases. And they've actually now identified he may have done three. I mean, I was terrified that that's what we were seeing, that this was going to be sloppy police work where um, a black man has come forward and they've just put everything on him. But he's been able to give details. He's been able to say, I was driving this car. And they find out in the in the files that, that there was this car at the at the scene and all of this sort of stuff, everything seems to be dropping into place. And, you know, we're up to 90. Of course, we have a lot of um, trials and everything to go on, but him being so old, I doubt we'll actually see him go to trial, but it just depends. But it's so amazing that this has proven that sometimes they do do the right thing and and bringing these cases to someone, it seems to be working the right way. I've been proven wrong and I'm fine with that. It's just amazing, though, that um, there's so many victims and, you know, he he, yeah. he he hasn't even been fingered for most of them. Yeah. And as they said, it's credible. Yeah. Um, I'm sure we're going to hear a lot more from this guy mm-hmm. as time goes on. He just seems to be drip-feeding information all the time. Well, yeah, I, I think it's more to do with that. He, he gives them small snippets that he has. I mean, some of this is 30, 40, 50 years ago. And so they have to go back through and try and find these files and see what he can what what his answers match up without sort of mm. feeding him the info to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that, that's right, I had a red car, not a blue car. So it's been really, really hard and obviously there's no things like DNA or anything for most of these cases. So it's been a lot of arduous police work across the country basically. So mm. 
don't know what number we're going to get to, but I think, you know, they're saying it might it may go over 100. Well, with Christmas just around the corner, why don't you buy yourself the best Christmas present a true crime fan can get themselves? And that's a subscription to Monsters Who Murder, Serial Killer Confessions on Patreon. For as little as $5, you get brand new episodes early, but the $10 tier gives you access to the serial killer whisperer, Amanda Howard. You get a Facebook direct chat with her Pretty much all the time because she's <laughs> always on Facebook. So just go to patreon.com slash mwmconfessions. You can see all the tears, all the deals, and we'll talk to you on the other side. And speaking of the other side, on the other side of this break, we'll talk more about Scott Peterson. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. It's the most talked about TV show that's not on TV. And I think you guys are amazing. With raw, honest opinions. This was not a mistake. This was a lie. Exclusive stories. Some industry insiders have been talking about this. Is that a Ben Robin Robbo exclusive? And plenty of famous faces. I'm not wasting these gold moments on 60 Minutes. (laughs) The Ben Robin Robbo Show is the new way to stream your news. This is the stuff that headlines are made of. Live every Monday to Thursday. Thursday at 1pm Australian Eastern Standard Time on Ticker TV or Facebook and Twitter at BRR Show. Watch live or on demand. It's In Modesto, California, eight months pregnant, Lacey Peterson disappeared sometime between 8.30pm on December 23, 2002, and 6.30pm on December 24. Her husband, Scott, claimed he saw her for the final time on the morning of Christmas Eve as he left to go golfing. He told friends he would be doing that, even though he would later change this story to him having gone fishing. Peterson claimed he returned later that afternoon to find Lacey not home, but a car was in the driveway and she was reported missing. Four months later, on April 13, 2003, two people walking their dog made a disturbing discovery in the Berkeley area of San Francisco Bay. A decomposing full-term baby boy was found with the umbilical cord still attached and he was floating amongst the vegetation. The following day, the dismembered body of a woman was also found. Let's return now to the police interview with Scott Peterson in the early hours of Christmas Day 2002. He has had answers to most questions, though when questioned about his marriage, he was gruff and gave monosyllabic answers. Detective Bracino makes an error that would undo most of his interrogation to that point as he tries to go in hard. But he has misunderstood a previous piece of information and thinks it's his gotcha moment. But instead makes him look like a bit of an ass. <laughs> Would you be willing to take a polygraph? Sure. So what you're telling me, Scott, is there's no... You have no idea where this is. Okay, I... I, I only have, I have a couple concerns. One is the cell phone call that you made. That if you listen to it, that call was made at 1217. 
the first one you made from uh, Berkeley. Yes. You said from both. No, you said two seventeen, but the timestamp on the call says twelve seventeen. And then to me, you saved it, right? I saved it. So yeah. for those that didn't quite catch that, let me explain. Detective Pacino says, Scott, I don't believe you made the call to Lacey at 2.17, as the recording says 12.17. Yeah, but Scott knows that as well because he says, no, it played back and it was and it was saved at 12.17 because just prior to this, um, he, he played the phone call for the officer, but you can't hear it, so, so it wasn't worth showing. So, you know, um, this was only just shortly before this, and so the officer thought, oh, my God, I've got you. You said it was 12.17, you, you said it was 2.17, but it was actually 12.17. You've got a two-hour gap here. You know, what were you doing for all this time? And he thinks he's got him. You know, this is his his lie, but Scott knows exactly. He made sure he made that call at 2.17, saying, I'm on my way back. I'm going to have to go and dump the boat at the office, and I'll be back you know and so he knows that he had that time stamp that this is why when he apparently played Lacey's phone call the first time he actually recorded it um uh, saved it so it had a time stamp then but then when the officer has has played it again he pressed save again to keep it so this has backfired on this officer majorly because <laughs> he's like you know I don't believe you because this call sort of proves that it was wrong that you knew at 12 17 she 
wasn't around, you know, and it's like, yeah, so, you know, this is, it's things like this that, that uh, people in Peterson's camp says, you know, this proves he's innocent because, you know, the, the investigation Well, one stuff was, up from a cop. Yeah, well, that's where it starts, you know, and they believe that it sort of snowballed from, from there that they, that they didn't look elsewhere, that they looked at him and no one else. You Interesting, know. though, if you're Peterson at this point, you'd be going, huh, I'm Scott yep. Free. <laughs> yeah, you just stuffed up, mate. Yeah, but he he was he was con- concerned about the the polygraph. You know, he's he's saying, you know, are you sure they're accurate and all of this? And um, I wouldn't trust a polygraph. I, I I have to say because people know how to beat them, and psychopaths know how to beat them, and most people. Yeah, well, yeah. in the words of George Costanza, it's not a lie if you believe it yeah. to be true. 100%. And that's why I've always said that if Ivan Milat took a lie detector test, he would pass it because he is convinced of his own um, innocence so much that, you know, he he would have passed quite easily. Mm. I would have loved for them to give him a polygraph. But anyway, I digress. So he literally has to back up and explain what's next as he flips-flops back <laughs> to Scott's innocence. No, it's just like the next step in this thing. So really uh, what's left is... The flyers, the canvas tomorrow, the media coverage. What concerns me the most is the fact that your dog came home with a leash on. That bothers me. I mean, no question. Yeah. Um, What concerns me most is doing anything I can to further progress. I appreciate that. And I don't want you to hold I don't want you to hold it against me. I mean sometimes I hate asking you got to do it. But I, I do. I really do have to do it and I mean I understand I'm glad you have a strong support system with you. Yeah. Um, and I'll give you my numbers and my cards but there's not more a lot more we can do right now other than cameras. But we can do a lot. Okay. Do you have any questions? No, I mean, I've asked you a couple times what to do, um, so I have the answers to that. So I'm going to go do it. And so, yeah, there's, you know, all we can do now is make people aware of the problem, the situation. And hope that if somebody saw something or knows something. Telling a question at that point about resources available. You saw my mother-in-law tonight. Um, you, know, you saw some of my wife's friends. My son for uh, counseling that kind of thing. There, yeah, there. Can you give us some numbers or back search them? No, no, I can give you those numbers. Um, I just don't know. You, I mean, you're probably not going to get any answers today. Yeah, no, no, I mean, but... Yeah. It's Christmas. I mean, yeah, of course. Well, and there's no need to qualify. Today. We finally see in the next days. Yeah, I'll agree. Yeah, I'll give you those numbers. I will. That's my number, my cell phone number, and uh, I'll get you the, the number to the victim services. 
now, where do you want to go? Oh, physically, back to my home. Okay, give me one second. Hopefully they're done over there. So that's the end of the police interview. <laughs> oh, he, he really did he, stuff up the end of that. Yeah, he um, did. <laughs> you know, he's got nowhere to go after he stuffed up a key piece of information, right? Yeah, because he thought that he had him and, you know, and then all of a sudden he's like, okay, well, now we'll get the, the flyers done and we'll get people out searching and, you know, we'll, we'll help you with that part. And he sort of... That was his his moment that he thought he had him and when it stuffed up, he sort of had to back off and now he has to play the other way around and just go with the this could be an innocent guy and so we'll go looking for her and, you know, we'll release the house back to him and all, all that sort of stuff. So we're going to flash forward a month now. So this is an interview on CBS Sacramento and what we have to remember is that this is before Lacey and Connor have been found. First of all, describe what the past month has been for you. It's been absolutely terrible, as it is for everyone. I mean, you see us in press conference. You haven't seen me as much in the media, but you see our families and the raw emotion that's out there and the grief, um, the frustration. You know, we go through a range of emotions from anger to frustration to grief. For me, it's uh, a... uh, it comes at different times during the day. Two weeks ago, I knew exactly what to do. I'd go to the volunteer center at the Red Lion and open up the center and wait for the volunteers to come and work on things. And, and then I'd go out and put up flyers. I knew exactly what to do, and that was going to bring Lacey home. Um, and now I don't know exactly what to do, and that's so frustrating. That's the hardest part. I mean, we have a, a core group of volunteers still working to get her picture out there nationally through corporations and organizations and obviously media and other means. So we continue to work tirelessly, um, many people do, to bring her home. And we can do that during the day. And unfortunately at night, don't know what to do. And the, the grief hits and it's unbearable. But you, you also have to recognize that Lacey is hurting worse than any of us. She's the one that's not with our family. She's the one that we need to find and bring home. Okay, so you noticed a few things in there. Yeah, well, I mean, that went for 90 seconds. And in that time, he only blinked four times. Now, I know that because I've watched it 100 times. Um, So I just tried to do that myself and my eyeballs dry really, really quickly. So I I have a thing about blinking and I notice non-blinkers. But then he does start to blink and he does blink four times. And it's in syncopation with his word me. You know, he he does this long blink whenever he refers to himself. You know, and then he also, when he said Lacey is me, missing he actually laughs can we play that part again just there's a section just there yeah okay sure Lacey is hurting worse than any of us she's the one that's not with our family yeah I see what you mean yeah so that wasn't a a attempt to cry that was a laugh you know it's uh, it's only subtle and you guys know I I go for subtle because I'm as subtle as a hammer um but yeah <laughs> but but just just that you know he he laughs that she's not home it's a nervous laugh in a way yeah it he is. knows she's not home 
Yeah, so so he has or to sort of... Or not coming home. Yeah. He sort of has to hide that by um, sort of playing against it because he doesn't want to give a telltale sign and then does it anyway. So, you know, it, it doesn't help for him to play this tragic husband when he laughs at things like that. Mm. Okay, the interview continues and he does break. It's hard to go to, you know, it's important though because in the mornings when down there alone, you know, I feel closer to her. Maybe that's an attempt to communicate or something, but yeah, definitely. It's interesting. His face reddens, his eyes shimmer. To me, he seems like a lost person. He does, and this is actually genuine emotion. He, he is actually upset, you know, but we also know that this is still before other aspects of his life comes to light, like people don't know what else is about to come, mm. um, you know, and so he knows he needs to play the dutiful husband, you know, the poor man whose wife has disappeared, his unborn son, you know, and there's that there, there is plenty of suspicion, but, you know, this is just... Most of them just sort of went to have the story because people don't expect, you know, a good-looking man, good-looking wife, you know, expecting their baby at Christmas that something bad happens to people like that. No, that's absolutely right. Look, the media does like doing these type of interviews and we've seen them time and time again being used as fodder after someone who appears innocent is then charged with crimes. I can tell you, Amanda, in some of the newsrooms I've worked in, if there is a live press conference with someone whose partner or family member has gone missing, the more they cry, the more guilty they are, is what the people in the newsroom believe. You'll hear the <laughs> cause, the chief of staff shouted out, he's guilty. Look at the, he's putting on the tears, the, the waterworks, you know, like, and, and they literally do say the more tears, the more guilt. Yeah, well, they usually don't have tears, but they cry. So yeah. and that and that's a big difference. I mean, here in Australia, good point. We had um on on the front page of the Daily Telegraph at the time, Seth Gonzalez, whose family had all or been killed. They took all these photos of him mourning over their graves, and then he gets arrested for killing them all. Matthew mm. Wales um carried his his, his mum's coffin to the car after the funeral dabbing his eyes with a dry tissue, as they all do, and then he gets arrested for killing his parents. I mean, we see this time and again, and so they know to get these close-ups. They want to see that tear that doesn't come. They want to They want to get that so then when it turns, and we know most of these cases do turn, that then, then they go, aha, and this is them faking. So if they can cry on camera on cue, what's to make the jury believe them when they're in the courtroom? And that's why they do it. Right. Well, look, we now have another person to add to the mix. Amber Frey was dating Scott Peterson at the time of Lacey's disappearance. Tell me more about their relationship. Okay. Well, their first date was only a couple of weeks before. It was on November 20. Um, They'd actually been introduced by a mutual friend a few weeks before. Now, um, the mutual friend had been told by Scott, you know, I'm a single guy. I'm looking for an intelligent girl I'd like to have a long-term relationship with. This friend didn't know that Peterson did have a wife and so right. she went, yeah, fine, I, I I know this girl Amber, I think you'd like her. They chatted a few times on, on the phone before they actually met up and they they hit it off quite quickly, um, you know, and so over the coming weeks from the 20th of November onwards, if he knew that he had to have family time or had other commitments, he would just say to Amber that he was overseas or on business trips and he would do all those things so, you know, he didn't have an excuse not to be there for Thanksgiving and all of this sort of stuff. 
Ah, that's interesting because Scott had told Amber he was going to be in Paris for New Year's, so contact would be sporadic. And then he calls her on December 31. He claims he is in Paris at the fireworks on the Eiffel Tower. Have a listen to this call. like he's got the blow dryer going near the phone there. <laughs> he's got something. He's really playing the game. It's quite amazing. Um, it's it, And, like, she, she has no idea about the real story. I don't know how, if she can live nearby or it, it, live anywhere in the US and not know about this case. I mean, I knew about this case pretty quick, but, I mean... Maybe she, she just doesn't watch the news. I don't know. You know, over Christmas people have other things to do. But, yeah, he's he's playing the game well that he even has fireworks from the Eiffel Tower playing in the background and pretending he can't hear her. Um, you know, but he, he, he does this a lot and he will pretend he can't hear her many times during phone calls. And it's it's quite interesting. It's usually when she asks a difficult question. Yeah, he should have put an episode of um, some French show like, uh, I don't know, yeah. Yeah, just uh, Sacre Bleu <laughs> in the background. <laughs> uh, so we get to the point now where Amber finds out the truth that Scott isn't only married but his wife is currently missing. So we have some calls back to back. They were broken up, they were disconnected, but we've put them together. I've put little whooshes in between so you know what's going on. This is the call when Scott finally admits the truth about his wife. This is on January 6. It takes a few times, as I said, but Amber is completely confused and wants answers after her friend called her and confirmed that Scott is married and his wife is missing. Hello. Rush. <laughs> Hi. Hey. You can hear me? Yeah, perfect. Really? Oh, my God. I'm so glad that, to hear from you. Why? Oh, uh, well, something uh, strange had happened today. Um, I'm here. Can you hear me? Hey. Okay, gotcha. Okay. Barely. Barely? Yeah, what's up? I just, um, well, I got a message from Saki. She was in between, um, airports today. I don't know what happened with her flight. Amber, Amber, you there? I'm here. Amber, I can't hear you. I can hear you just fine. Amber, I don't know if you're there or not. Amber? I can hear you. Amber, She's worried about me, and I have no idea what she's what she's talking about. Yeah, 
Amber, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Amber. I can hear you. Okay, I can't hear. I don't know if you're there, sweetie. Um, I can hear you. I just don't know. I'm worried about her. She said she's worried about me, and I have no idea what she's talking about. Her plane's, I don't know when her plane's going to get in. I just, I've, she just sounded very concerned for me, and I'm just, I have no idea what she's talking about. Are you there? Can you hear me?
I, I had to call you and tell you that. You never, asked, I, you never answered my question, Scott. You don't, you don't, I can't, I can't say anymore. I think I deserve. You deserve so much better. No question, you deserve so much better. Yeah, and I deserve to understand an explanation of why you told me you'd lost your wife and this was the first holidays you'd spend without her. That was December 9th you told me this, and now all of a sudden your wife's missing? Are you kidding me? Did you hear me? I did. I, 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 I don't know what to say. I think an explanation would uh, be a start. I know you absolutely deserve an explanation. Yes, I do. I do. And I want to give you one. I'm listening. I, I can't now. I mean, you don't I, I understand. Don't, I don't. You don't understand why. the situation. Then why don't you and in on the situation and, and, and make it understand? I can't now. I'm why? so sorry for that. Why? To protect all of who? Everyone involved. So where is she? That's what we are trying to find out. We, it's a nationwide search. We have, I mean, it's a half a million dollar reward for information leading to her safe return. Okay, so again, you never answered my question. Why did you tell me it would be the first holidays without her? I can't. I can't explain anymore now. When I'm so sorry. You should be so angry at me, and I got. I hope you are. I just. Yeah, isn't that what you told me before? Oh, I wish you know it'd be so much easier if you just hate me and not want to talk to me. And and of course, the, the, the person I am, of course, I'm going to say, you know, you told me you lost your wife. You sat there in front of me and cried and broke down. I sat there and held your hand, Scott, and comforted you. And you were yep. lying to me. Again, you're lying to me about lying. I lied to you about traveling, yeah. That's among everything else. That's just an added. Wow, there's a lot to unpack in there. <laughs> yeah. So he had told her that he had lost his wife even before Lacey went missing. Yep, so he had this all planned out. And can you imagine the police officers that have this tap on her phone because she's unaware that, that that there's a tap on her phone? And this is why she became the prosecution's best evidence is because she had all of this, you know, that she had held his hand while he cried saying, he's, you know, he'd lost his wife and he's about to go go through Christmas without her. And, like, she's like, I held your hand. Like, he, he wanted a smart woman. He got one. Because she she put two and two together real quick, you know. And, and she was interesting because the way he tried to play her by saying, "I can't," you should be angry at me. Yeah. So he Victim. was using emotional um, blackmail, blackmail in a way. Yeah, absolutely. To try and put her off the scent, but she was interesting because she was coming back. Yeah. When can I know what's going on? Yeah. You know, like You're she not was answering my questions. Yeah. yeah. And this is why we had to play all three calls because she kept going in saying, you know, our, it, because they were talking about her, their mutual friend that was getting on flights and said that she had heard the news and had, had to tell Amber. And so that's why we, we had to play all, all three calls. Now we have a piece of that that we don't have. It's been taken off everywhere. I cannot find it. And it's the start of that third phone call because he actually talks more about, um, yeah, that 
he does have a wife and he's sorry, you know, but that's about it, you know. But she's going, hang on a sec, your wife's missing and you told me she was already gone, you know, one on one mate too, and she had it all planned out. She knew exactly what was going on and so she become, you know, the, the, the prosecution's witness. Hmm. Well, look, we've got another call here between Scott and Amber just 15 days after Lacey went missing and police had put that tap on the phone that you were talking about. So are you going to uh, talk to your family about me? Well, at this point it's inevitable it's going to, but I mean, what's your thought or uh, output on that? So he's talking about a long-term relationship with Amber. So much for the sacred, so much for the scared, pitied husband from that CBS interview, Amanda. Yeah, and of course this means that he knows that Lacey isn't coming back. You know, he's moved on. Yeah. You know, Lacey was essentially a hurdle and an obstacle. And um, he'd actually said to Amber prior to this that he doesn't want children. Now, Amber does have a child and um, there was one point that they they had a pregnancy scare and he sort of said, yeah, well, no, that's not happening. I'm going to get a vasectomy anyway. And so he had all of this planned out. He believes that he had met the one, you know, and at the same time, on the very same day as this phone call, he's actually um, adding hardcore, hardcore porn sites to his TV subscription, you know. He's already moving on. He's, he's thinking about, well, 
just one part of him, basically, you know. But this, mm. he's he's just a piece of work, you know. There's there's so many that believe in his innocence, but here he's telling Amber that he's single. He's telling her that his his wife's dead. Then she finds out that she's only just gone missing now, and he's saying that she's not coming back. I mean, this is psychopathy. He he has no care or thought for this woman that he had been in love with for so long. We know that he's had had previous affairs, but now this is the one that changed the story. She is not to blame at all for this and, and good on her, her for changing sides. But I would love to know when she knew the police were tapping her because she obviously gets involved because you can hear some of the phone calls. She's asking things that I don't think she would have normally asked. But she is asking the tough questions and, and trying to force him to answer it. And she's like, with everything going on, do you really think this is the time to invite me to meet your family? Like, really? Mm. Interesting. Well, look, let's fast forward to April. And it was April 13, 2003, a couple discovered the body of Lacey's unborn son in the river, where Peterson claimed to have been fishing. The following day, Lacey was also found. Now, I can't imagine either of them were in good condition, Amanda, considering it had been more than four months. Yeah, no, they weren't. I mean, Lacey was actually missing her head and her neck. Oh both forearms and one leg. Now, Connor was actually in a better condition and we actually talked about um, the possibility of a coffin birth, but we'll actually get in, into that further. But um, it did take the, the police, well, basically 24 hours to actually um, identify them and then, of course, Peterson was arrested. But, yeah, the, um, Lacey's body, um, losing a head when you've been in water isn't so uncommon, but losing her neck as well makes it a whole different kettle of fish. Now, you've gone through a lot of the court testimony and exhibits. In our introduction to the episode last week, we talked about coffin deaths and how the body of a dead pregnant woman can expel a baby, but further digging that you've done found it may not have been a coffin death. No, because there were injuries um, that the baby had suffered, which we will get into, um, but it appears that um, Connor wasn't actually expelled from her body, which means that he was taken out beforehand. This really does keep getting more horrifying. Now, look, you've provided a transcript of the examination of Dr Brian Peterson by Deputy DA David Harris. I'll read that. I'll play both parts. Harris starts first. Dr Peterson picks up. Well, we Excuse get the bad acting and bad accents. <laughs> okay. All right. But here we go. And you talked about the location, kind of where the uterus is at. When you look at this, you made the determination the individual had been pregnant. Did you look to see if she had delivered this baby? I did. The portion that the term would be birth canal. So the lower portion of the uterus would involve the cervix and then is the passages within the vagina. Those structures were closed. So a baby had not passed out in that direction. You say had not gone through. Correct. Did you look to see if there was some type of incision, like a C-section? I did, and normally when caesarean sections are performed, the incision is down low. It's near the pubic bone, and there was no incision in that area. And in terms of how that baby would get out of that uterus, what was it that you found? I was left with only the one other choice, and that is that the top of the uterus, the fundus, was open. So I determined that the baby had exited through the top of the uterus. And again, just so we're clear about that, the top of the uterus you are describing as the fundus, where is the fundus at? Probably the simplest way to think about this, as it would have been near the belly button, a little bit higher. So 
Amanda, what this all means is that Connor was probably cut from Lacey's abdomen in a brutal C-section type operation. Um, yes and no. So the baby has been expelled at the top and not through the birth canal is what all that says. And there is an injury to her stomach. Was it made when her her body de- decomposed far enough to expel him? They really don't know. It's It's one of those questions that they can't decide which way it went. So... There are suggestions that because Connor wasn't as decomposed as Lacey, that yes, he was in her body for a lot longer, and then she, then he was expelled. But there is also these injuries um, that suggest that maybe he had been forced out by some other means, and that her stomach had been cut open and the baby had been removed. But the experts cannot a hundred percent agree which way it actually happened. Right. Well, in the end, Scott Peterson was found guilty of the murders of his wife and unborn son on November 12, 2004. He was later sentenced to death for the crimes. After several appeals over the ensuing years, by August 2020, the courts upheld the murder convictions. However, his death sentence was vacated. He remains incarcerated in San Quentin State Prison in California, where an appeal a few weeks ago was postponed due to the current pandemic. Amanda... Interesting case, this one. I quite admire Amber, I have to say, and well done her for just not being uh, another victim of his and actually standing up and getting the information. Well done her. Yeah, I mean, we only played, like, three or four phone calls here. There is, like... 50, 60 of them also or something. I played a fair few of them and, and she and she puts the hard word on him but then other times she sort of talks about a time when she had sent him a photo um, and written a love note on the on the back of it and he talks about keeping that and, and there's all these other bits and pieces that happen um, that, that she does sort of sway a, a bit sometimes but um, yeah, she, she was very dubious of him from the very beginning and so you know it's good that she was able to stand up as you said. But I imagine you would because she has been a lover of this guy. Mm-hmm. They have a connection. Yeah. And so then you find out this terrible thing and how do you reconcile that with the person you know? Exactly. Very, very tough for anyone who becomes an in- inadvertent victim mm-hmm. of these uh, killers. All right, Amanda, thank you very much for that. Don't forget you can go to patreon.com slash Confessions to make sure you get all your Christmas goodies with extra access to the Serial Killer Whisperer. We'll see you soon, Amanda Howard. Thank you very much. Thank you. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. 